0: This is American Rhapsody, a podcast of the Briscoe Center for American History at the University of Texas at Austin. American history is many things, but it is most certainly a rhapsody, quilted together from the ragged patches of many disjointed stories, and yet somehow still managing to form a coherent whole. I'm Don Carlton, Executive Director of the Briscoe Center, a repository for the raw materials of the past, the evidence of history that we collect, preserve, and make available for use. Each episode, we talk to the individuals who helped create that evidence, to the donors who preserved it, and to the researchers who use those collections in their work. And we keep the American Rhapsody going. Americans have been shocked by the stream of visual information that has flooded the news and social media over the past year. Images and videos of the vicious murder of George Floyd. Peaceful protesters being assaulted and tear gassed by the very authorities who should be protecting them. Looting and rioting at an unprecedented event in the history of the United States, the violent assault on the nation's capital by right-wing extremists. We have also witnessed the deplorable treatment of many journalists covering these events, some targeted with rubber bullets, pepper spray, tear gas, and rough treatment, even when clearly identified. Local, state, and national authorities have failed to make the distinction between professional reporters and the protesters they are covering. The result is that riot police have attacked the very eyes of the nation. For decades, members of the press have placed themselves in harm's way to document America at its worst. The same is true for those covering our current protests. Today, we'll hear from Carolyn Cole, a photojournalist with the Los Angeles Times, whose archive is part of the Briscoe Center's collections. Over the past 30 years, Cole has witnessed and photographed major tragedies, disasters, and war. From the 1999 Columbine High School massacre and the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina in 2005, to wars in Gaza, Bosnia, Liberia, and Iraq. She received the Pulitzer Prize for feature photography in 2004 for her coverage of the Siege of Monrovia, the capital of Liberia. Despite her lengthy experience working in combat zones, she didn't expect to be targeted as a journalist in her own country. In June 2020, Cole was temporarily blinded with mace when she covered the Black Lives Matter protests in Minneapolis following the murder of George Floyd. The people who attacked her were not protesters, rioters, or agitators. They were police officers. Carolyn's sight, thankfully, has been restored, and she's back working for the LA Times. Today, her work focuses on the environment. In this episode, she discusses the Minneapolis protests the importance of portraying the human cost of conflict, and her conscious effort to record history. Carolyn is interviewed by Alison Beck, the Center's Director for Special Projects, and Ben Wright, the Center's Former Associate Director for Communications. Over to them.
1: Well, thank you, Don. Today, as you've mentioned, we're joined by Carolyn Cole, and we also have Alison Beck, the Director of Special Projects here at the Briscoe Center. Welcome, Carolyn. Thank you very much. And welcome, Alison, too. Thank you. Well, Carolyn, you graduated from the University of Texas at Austin in the 1980s. Tell us a little bit more about your time in Austin.
2: Well, first of all, I didn't find photojournalism until my sophomore year in college, but I quickly transferred to UT Austin because I knew they had a good reputation for journalism. And there I was very fortunate to have several good teachers, including J.B. Colson, Dennis Darling, and Larry Price. I mean, I clearly remember taking J.B. Colson's course, on the history of photography that first summer semester before my junior year. And it taught me so much about the importance of photography and about being a witness to history. And then that fall semester, Larry Price was one of my teachers. He had just won the Pulitzer for his coverage of the Civil War in Liberia. And he was very instrumental in in forming my work ethic. I I remember watching how hard he worked, not only in the field, but in the dark room, perfecting his prints. And he worked alongside the the students there. So he was very influential to me early on. And also Dennis Darling. I mean, he's an exceptional documentary photographer, and I still continue to admire his work to this day. So I had only two years at UT, But they provided me an incredible start to my photojournalism career, and I'm very thankful for that.
1: It reminds me of the joke about Michael Dell, who spent, I think, a year at UT before dropping out and uh, founding what is now a you know a very large and successful computer company and and someone once joked you know imagine how large and successful Dell would be if it had spent 4 years at the University
2: of Texas <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah i mean that's one of the things i wish i had found it earlier because i never got to work at the student newspaper i got in there very late and the staff of the student newspaper was already full so i didn't get my first internship till well after i left ut I first started a small daily outside of Washington, D.C., and I worked there for one year. And then I went back to graduate school at Ohio University. And it was then I got my first internship in El Paso, Texas. So I could have, uh-huh. uh, yeah, I could have been a little bit quicker on the start if I had found photojournalism a little earlier.
1: So um, I'd love to know more about your time in, in West Texas. Was that with the El Paso Herod Post?
2: Yes. I mean, West Texas was just the perfect place for me to start my career. It was actually an internship that had been offered to one of my friends at at graduate school. But when she turned it down, I I applied and was able to get that internship. And just being on the border was something that I had never experienced before. My dad was in the military, and basically I grew up in the suburbs of both California and Virginia. And I had never really been working on a border before. And this was a great experience because it it was like working in in an international country. At that time, the Pond and the pre parties were very active and thousands of people would gather for these giant rallies. They'd storm the bridges. It was something I had never seen, these people that were so passionate about the news and, and about their government. So the other stories that were going on at that time were obviously the drug wars, immigration, the factory workers, many of the same stories that are still continuing to this day. So I'm very grateful for the time that I had there. And that led me to move to Mexico City a few years later, where I worked as a freelancer traveling all over Mexico and Central America and the Caribbean, including Haiti. And I think that those years I spent in Central America and Mexico were very instrumental in, you know, gaining confidence, not only the ability to work alone, working in the field, and how to travel safely, but just giving me overall confidence in myself.
1: Yeah, and just as you describe, it was... I don't know how internships work today, and there's a lot of, they seem to be criticized quite a lot, but it was totally where I got my confidence and my first set of skills, made all my first mistakes, and I had a a wonderful time.
2: I mean, I I think there still is the opportunity for internships now, and I really recommend those for students because I had such a great experience. Of course, I made mistakes like everyone else during those early years, and, and that's what they're for. So I know that the LA Times still has an internship program. Many of the major newspapers still have internship programs, and I really advise students that are going in that direction to get them. In fact, I think students these days spend more time doing internships than we did. I think there are less jobs available, so that that means they're doing more internships than than in the old days. Because I got hired right out of out of my internship in, at the El Paso Herald Post.
1: And so, did that mean that you were sort of thrown into the frying pan sort of straight away as a young? Photojournalist, and you had to learn the job on the on the go. I suppose.
2: Well, I mean, not really, because I think that being there on the border, I had the the beauty of you know having a team. I had an editor, and I wasn't on my own. I had some structure, but being able to cross that border and gaining the experience of working in another country was very instrumental. So by the time I got to the LA Times, I already had over ten years' experience, and then it wasn't until 1999 that I was sent to cover the UN intervention in Kosovo. So I felt like at that point, I had already had a lot of international experience in in Central America and South America. So Kosovo was in 1999. And that was followed by the war in Afghanistan in 2001. And I don't think I would have been ready for those two assignments if I hadn't spent so many years abroad already.
1: Now, they sound like tremendously difficult assignments, but of course, you've also served the cause of photojournalism by embedding with U.S. Marines in the U.S.-Iraq War. You have uh, covered street battles in Sierra Leone and Liberia, covered sieges in the Middle East. Uh, What's it like being caught in the middle of all that chaos?
2: Well, I think part of that experience that I gained was learning news and instincts, and that's something that really has to come over time, because when you're covering conflicts, I mean, all your attention has to be on, on gaining up-to-date information, how to stay safe, how am I going to get to the front line, get back, make my deadline It isn't a time to be learning photography skills and to be gaining your news instinct. So I think most of the time I'm in covering complex, it's really about focusing on getting the job done at hand and and doing it safely, especially when you're working for a daily newspaper. So I'm filing constantly, especially these days. I mean, the deadlines are even shorter. But back then, I would work all day and then I would edit and file at night. And it's an exhausting process. So there's not a lot of time to reflect on what you're doing. You're just, I was just very highly driven, focused on what the job was.
3: How do you prepare to cover such big stories? So they tell you, okay, you're going to go to Kosovo and how much lead time did you have? And, and Yeah, how- very
2: little, very little lead time. I mean, and, and the reality is, is that, you can't possibly know everything about every country that you may go to. So I, I am trying to stay on top of what the news is and and what the developing stories are that are going on. But when you get there, you really do have to find contacts, local drivers, translators, local journalists, fixers, people who definitely know the area better than I do, and people who can sort of assist you in, in helping you stay safe and find the people that you need to tell the story primarily it's about what what is important for the readers of the LA times to know about what's happening in these countries and i've always felt that i was their eyes i was i was there to see what they couldn't see for themselves and it's something that i've always taken very seriously so i think nowadays there's less need for somebody like myself now with digital photography there are plenty of local journalists that can cover these conflicts. And I think there has been a shift now away from sending someone like myself to far off places because local journalists are able to cover their own stories. And I see that as a positive thing. Obviously, they they know the situations possibly better than someone coming from outside. I will say though, in, in some stories, it's an advantage to be an outsider. For instance, in Israel, I'm able to cross from the Palestinian side to the Israeli side. Even in Iraq, I was able to, you know, you can go back and forth across the front line. So sometimes it does help if you're an outsider. You know, most people around the world that are caught up in a crisis like this, they understand the importance of international journalists who are there to sort of share their story with the world. And so I've always tried to be very professional and project that professionalism and sincerity, because I think that really comes across and people respond to that. I also have a very clear understanding of what my role is, especially being an American photojournalist. I always felt that it was my responsibility to cover those conflicts, to be there to show what was happening, what what the influence, what the impact of the U.S. government's actions were. So I think just having that clear role has been very helpful to me.
1: It seems that having that role top of mind has two advantages. One is that you've been very conscious throughout your career of being a witness to history, as you said earlier in the podcast. and I think that's a really wonderful way to put it, especially for from the historian and archivist' position that your archive you know it, there's a consciousness to that that isn't necessarily there with all the papers and archives that are that are at the center or in in other places. But then I think the other one, and you've spoken to the center about this before, is it seem to be able to, there's a mental distance you're able to keep with some pretty grueling subjects.
2: Yeah, I think it does help me if I have that focus, not to get so emotionally involved that I lose sight of what my purpose is. I mean, if I'm unable to carry out my, my job, then I, I shouldn't be there. And my job is to show what the human cost of war is but in a way that people won't turn away from. So I don't keep a mental distance, but rather I try to bring that view as close as possible to what's going on in the world through my photography. So I think that sense of purpose really has enabled me to get close, but at the same time not get so involved that that I'm unable to do my job.
3: Right. I think one of the strong characteristics of your work that's evident when we see it, is your compassion for your subjects. And it's just really striking because here you are surrounded by those being injured and killed and, and yet you're able to continue. And so in that moment of under fire, how do you keep your focus? How do you decide what's important? And how do you go about protecting yourself?
2: Well, physically, the protection is, you know, I've always been very regimented about wearing protective gear, but I do think most of it is comes down with the people you're working with and just finding people that you have confidence in and, and, even working with other journalists that I've known from other conflicts. There was a time when a group of us were traveling to quite a few of the same places, so we knew we could rely on one another. and That really helps a lot, having somebody to watch your back and watching someone else's back and and then also relying on local people who, who know the, the area better than you do. I think those have been instrumental in helping me get through some very difficult times. But of course, several of my friends did not make it. So these, these situations are very dangerous. A lot of it comes down to luck. And I certainly have been lucky, but I, I do try to do everything I can to stay safe. At the same time, if you're not willing to get in there, then you're not going to get the pictures you need. And most of the time, these are places where the government doesn't want you to see what's happening. And it's your job to push past those barricades to get to the source of the story. And that certainly was the case in the Church of the Nativity. You know, even in Iraq, it was very difficult to get into Iraq before the Iraq War started and to be in there when the American bombing started. So all of this is about access And working for a daily newspaper, I think, was very helpful to me. It's very costly to cover these kind of conflicts, and and having the support of the newspaper and my editors gave me that extra sense of protection and has allowed me to cover a lot more stories than I probably would have been able to do as an individual.
1: Well, Carolyn, your career has been mercifully injury-free, though that is until recently. Can you describe to us your experience in Minneapolis over the summer?
2: Sure. The protests in Minneapolis had been going on for about four days when my my editor decided to send myself and one other photographer. That's definitely not the way I like to approach a story because the story had already been, it was well underway. And by the time I arrived there, I was arriving at night. The city was already in flames. And it was on the second day that I was covering a peaceful protest at one of the police precincts. There was a group of protesters that were sitting down in the middle of an intersection listening to speakers. There were about 20, 25 journalists that were sort of off to the side on a side road, separated from the protesters. But we all knew that the curfew was about to, you know, was approaching. And once it did, the police started coming out of the police precinct. And that's when the conflict happened. You know, I've never been in a situation where the police couldn't distinguish the press from the protesters. I mean, we were clearly identified. I had a helmet on, flak jacket, gas mask, my cameras around my neck. I had a big TV written on my flak jacket. I had goggles. And and most of the other journalists that were standing with me had the same kind of identifying marks but yet the Minneapolis it was actually the Minnesota State Patrol came straight over to our group and fired pepper spray into our faces and then started firing rubber bullets at us it was something i've never seen before i know it has happened before but i had never experienced such a direct attack by police officers and basically my eyes were burned and i couldn't see where i was going i had to try to get out of the scene because they weren't even allowing us to you know retreat basically they were making us go forward with the other protesters and a group of us got cornered into a wall area i got thrown over the wall by a, one of the officers and it was a real nightmare and, and an embarrassment i mean i have been covering conflicts for a long time but it's never pretty when you get caught up in something like this
1: You were able to capture part of the scene, the audio to the scene. I'm going to play that and I'd I'd love you to walk us through it once it's finished playing. Carolyn, how are you able to capture this footage?
2: I was taking pictures throughout up until the time the pepper spray hit me in the eyes. So I did get quite a few pictures off as the police patrol was coming at us directly into our faces. And then somehow the video started. I don't know how the video actually started rolling, but that's what you're hearing. You're hearing the audio of the video. Although the video right. is just of the ground, there was one clip at the end of the video, which is when the journalist, myself included, got cornered into this walled-in area. And that's why I think that you'll you hear me saying, I'm trying, I'm trying, but I'm trying to get over that wall. But it's about four and a half, five feet And I already have on a flak jacket helmet and all my cameras, and I literally can't get over this fence, which is a metal fence. And they're still telling us to, you know, get out, keep moving or whatever. And then he, the police officer actually puts me up on the wall and I fall over to the other side. So that's sort of the audio that you're hearing from the video. And you can see the other journalists that are there, including my co-worker, Molly Hennessy Fisk, who was shot several times with rubber bullets. As we're retreating, as we're running away, they're still firing rubber bullets at us. And I can actually see them, although I can barely see. I'm feeling along the wall to get out of this situation because I can't, my eyes are not functioning. Uh, But I do see sparks that are flying off the back of, of the reporter's body, basically.
1: It seems that this is a pretty unique moment in American history you're capturing, at least in modern American history. Obviously, there are examples of civil rights photographers being treated pretty roughly by Southern troopers in the late 50s and 1960s. But this seems to be a return to that kind of treatment, and, uh, and you captured it. Why do you think state troopers in Minnesota failed to make the distinction between press and protester?
2: Well in this case, the Minnesota State Patrol had not been out on the streets. They had been holed up. And this was the first time that the Minnesota State Patrol was coming out into the streets. And I think they had a lot of pent up anger towards towards the protesters. Obviously the city had been burning already for three or four days. They weren't making any distinction whatsoever between the protesters and the and the press. And I think their mentality was just to clear the area. Now, the press had been allowed. They were not supposed to have to abide by the curfew. In fact, the governor the next day apologized, saying that, no, the press is not subject to the curfew. But it was too late. And and the sad thing is, is I was unable to carry out my job. So to me, the the tragedy is that this kind of behavior, I mean, actually shut down many journalists. One lady lost her eye. You know, I couldn't work for about a month after that. The reporter continued to work, but I mean, it really is, it really does prevent journalists from going out and doing their job that they should be out there doing. Luckily, you know, there's many journalists there to cover it, but I think that's the biggest disappointment for me was that I wasn't able to carry out my job.
1: Uh, Dr. Carlton talked about this in an editorial for The Hill as being an attack on the eyes of America. I wanted to ask you, how has covering protests changed over the last 30 years? Has there been a slow creep to this sort of treatment, be it incompetence or something more nefarious? Or has it been, have we sort of crossed the threshold? Is this to all intents and purposes new?
2: I think there has been a shift. Internationally, the shift came when Daniel Pearl was killed in Pakistan. That was when journalists started to become a direct target and and that only accelerated and exacerbated through the time in Afghanistan and then into Iraq and then Syria I mean it's only gotten worse that journalists have become a direct target of groups that want to make a statement or for ransom and kidnapping. And, you know, prior to that, journalists really did seem to be able to travel in sort of a bubble, doing being able to do their job. People around the world understood what the job of the journalist was, that their story was going to get out. They wanted us there to, to show what was happening to them. But there was a, sh- a serious shift after those incidents in the Middle East. Now here domestically, I think that just the rhetoric coming out of the White House really has exacerbated people's feelings about the press. And there has been a lot of hostility directed at the press in recent years that I have noticed. I guess that started when, well, it didn't just start then, but I remember covering Trump rallies four years ago when he would point at us and and call us liars. I mean, that certainly was a, a big shift in the way that the media had been treated. And that's only deteriorated since then. And so... The addition, in addition to that, in recent protests, we've started to see that people don't want to be identified. And that's something that is very new. We haven't been dealing with that in the past. In the past, people understood if you were going to a protest, it was a public event, you were out there to make a statement. But now protesters are demanding that we ask their permission to photograph them, to show their faces. That's a whole nother level that we haven't had in, in earlier years.
1: Uh, so this is changing concept of public space.
2: Definitely, uh, definitely. And people are attacking journalists in ways that we've never seen before. I know I was at a protest here in Los Angeles uh, about a month ago, and a woman claimed that I had wronged somebody that wasn't even her. And she said, it was, that's you. You were the one that was acting disrespectful. I wasn't even there. I was in Minnesota at the time that she was describing. But people are really directly attacking the media in ways that we've never seen before.
3: Carolyn, with that, can you compare your methods photographing with combat photography and protest photography? And how does protest and combat compare to other disasters you've covered, such as Hurricane Katrina, Columbine?
2: Well, I've always approached my work very similarly, whether it's a local story or an international story. I mean, my goal is to get in there, figure out what needs to be told, and to make images that best represent that, whether it's a simple protest like I went to this morning with some workers at the airport or an international story. I mean, I really I really try to make images that are going to speak to people, show them what's happening, get the information out there, first of all do it in a way that's aesthetically pleasing, compositionally, light and graphics. I mean, I'm really trying to combine all those elements into my work. And I think that what's happening in these days is just equally important to what we've covered over the last 30 years. I mean, nothing could be more important than What's happening with the California wildfires, with the pandemic going on this year, the economic crisis, the election, these are all critically important stories, and I really take them as important as any conflict that I've covered in the past. That being said, there is the opportunity to return and follow up with people that you may meet and photograph. That's not always the case when it's an international story. And certainly with New Orleans, I've gone back to New Orleans many times after Hurricane Katrina. I'm still in contact with some of the rescue workers that helped me during my first time there. So that's one of the advantages of being a local story is being able to follow up. I'm not a documentary photographer, so I am not on these stories over a long period of time where I'm spending you know months and years with people that's not the type of photography that I do I really am a photojournalist but I do stay in touch with some of them and that can be very rewarding and in terms of Louisiana I was in, I was there in 2010 to cover the BP oil spill and that story had a, a really profound effect on me I spent about a month trying to Cover the oil as it was washing up on the, on the seashore and the effects that it had on some of the wildlife there and just the environment. And I think that was when I really started to shift away from conflict and towards environmental journalism.
1: Well, Carolyn, you have been a witness to all of these epochal stories over the last thirty years, from Columbine and Katrina through to war in Iraq and Afghanistan, right up to the present with Black Lives Matters protests. And you know these—you've witnessed history through your eyes, and those eyes have—they've been attacked recently, and, and luckily uh, they've healed as well, and you're back out there continuing this uh, incredible documentation of american history as it unfolds before us and we're so thankful that your archives are at the briscoe center and i'd just like to know what your hopes are for the archive and what would you be your advice for students or other researchers that delve into these archives
2: well yes i'm very thankful that my work is now you know, at the Dolph Briscoe Center for, for, for American History. I mean, I have been very diligent over the years to keep every negative and file, not because I felt that each one of them was important, but because I was making a conscious effort to record history. And I don't think we always know what the importance of our work is going to be at the moment the images are taken. And that's why it's important to be consistent. So if I had advice to students, I would say that keep an important record, keep an archive, Keep it in order so that people can actually find what what they're looking for. And, you know, I've been a witness to so many historical events over the past 30 years. And, you know, that's the contribution that I've made. And I hope that that work can be used by the researchers, by some researchers in the future. I also feel that with the instability in the newspaper industry that it is important that the work has a place because we're not sure what's going to happen with newspapers in the future. We don't know what will happen with the archives. And now my work has a second home there at Briscoe. So I'm, I'm very grateful to that. In addition, I, I wish that I had kept better notes. I, I'm not a diary keeper, but if I were to go back, I would, I would definitely recommend that students keep more of a diary as well luckily I, every day of my life is recorded through photography so hopefully when i do retire i'll be able to go back and and pull up some of those memories from those years and from looking at the from looking at the images but i i think that i could have done that so much better if i had been keeping journals along the way
1: well when you do uh- Begin that process, Carolyn. Uh, I hope we can help in some way. Uh, it sounds like a fascinating project in and of itself, and would, would be a, a wonderful addition to the archive.
2: Oh, I'm definitely planning to go back and work on putting something together. I do hope that at some point in the near future, I'll be able to come to Austin and work with you all in putting something together that will be a more formalized version of the work that I've done over the past thirty years. And I would appreciate any help you could give me.
3: Yeah, and. I just wanted to follow up with this, Carolyn, for many years, you've led and instructed teams of photographers at the annual Eddie Adams workshop mm-hmm. held in mm-hmm. upstate New York. And in fact, this is the weekend of the workshop now gone virtual since we're in the middle of the pandemic, right? Because of the intensity of that workshop and the concentrated effort, had there been any possibility of imparting to the students that they should retain their work? as an archival wreck as you lead these teams?
2: You know, I haven't really thought about telling them that, but I think that is something that should be mentioned. You know, I'm not teaching at Eddie Adams this year. And I think Eddie Adams is maybe not the venue for that because it's such a short and intense three days of photography yeah. and, and storytelling. But certainly when I have time to meet with students one-on-one, I think that's when I'm at my best telling them about some of the experiences that I've had and, and the things that I would have wish that I could have done. I mean, I think another element of my work is that I didn't focus on on concise areas of concentration. I think it would have been good if I had had certain areas of concentration whether it was whether it's the environment or women or conflict or you know, I think my work is very broad and that's why Putting it into a book form may be more difficult, but I do tell students these days that they should be thinking about those central themes that they may want to follow throughout their career so that the work may have a more concise element
1: to it. Well Carolyn I I want to thank you for joining us today and I want to just add that your archive is at a place where we believe photographs are fundamental not ornamental to the telling of American history and I'm sure they will be used for decades to come to um, foster exploration of the American story so thank you so much for joining us. and Alison thank you for joining us as well.
2: Thank you for having me today I really appreciate it and I look forward to following the Podcasts that you have in the future.
0: Today's episode of American Rhapsody was made possible by the photographic archive of Carolyn Cole. Cole, a UT graduate, donated her extensive personal archive to the Briscoe Center in 2018. Her collection includes thousands of negatives, prints, contact sheets correspondence, and ephemera, as well as papers documenting her assignments. The vast majority of these images have never been published. They provide researchers with a remarkable array of primary source evidence. Please visit our show notes for this episode on the American Rhapsody website to view some of the photographs that are discussed in this interview. By collecting, preserving, and making these materials available, We help keep the debates and arguments about American history rooted in evidence. And we keep the American Rhapsody going.